0: Good evening. Thank you all for coming on this beautiful spring night, inside and outside. Um, We're here in the night room where a lot of our programs will be um, during the renovations of the Central Library. And if you haven't already, um, after the program, you can pick up a copy of our bi-monthly newsletter, Compass, which is on the table out there, as well as flyers for some upcoming events in uh, March and April. Uh, But tonight, we're really excited to welcome Professor Christy M. Fondren to Baltimore. Um, As some of you have already heard, she's an associate professor of sociology at Marshall University in West Virginia. Um, I'll just keep this really brief. From trail personas to trail magic, Fondren explores hiking subculture and its situational development in walking on the wild side. Long Distance Hiking on the Appalachian Trail, which is from Rutgers University Press and is available for $25 over here. So definitely think about picking that up. It traces the stories of 46 men and women who set out to conquer America's most well-known long-distance hiking trail, the Appalachian Trail. Um, And not only is it a book about the environmental elements of the trail, but it also captures the social, emotional, and spiritual community of the trail. So without further ado, Christy Fondren.
1: Well, I will admit this is the first time I've done anything like this, so I'm not quite sure how this goes. But um, but I'm, I'm pretty laid, laid back and flexible, so we can kind of honestly take this wherever you want to go. I don't have a... 30, 40-minute presentation that I'm about to give you. Um, so if you have specific questions, um, I can at least start out and share with you why I chose to do this, or what got me interested. Um, like some of you've already heard, I've hiked um, over 1,700 miles on the Appa. I was going to say Appalachian Trail. That's what the students in West Virginia told me it was, because I came there saying Appalachian. How many of you say Appalachian? I'm just. I always did, and of course they tell me you are in the heart of Appalachia. It's Appalachian Trail. That's is that how you Appalachian? Yeah, I didn't go there. And it's Appalachian. That's what they told me. So so I've shifted it.
0: Say that again. No, um, Appalachia State yeah. College.
1: Yeah, so... so. I, I will say Appalachian Trail, knowing though that I used to pronounce it Appalachian Trail. Um, so, same trail. But uh, so I started hiking the AT in 1999. Just a friend of mine in Wyoming said, Hey, you want to go hike for part of the summer? And I said, Sure, why not? Um, I'm originally from Mississippi, but I spent about four years working 48 miles northeast of Jackson Hole at just a remote little resort. And so we spent that summer 350 miles over about 40 days, and we hiked from the Delaware Water Gap on the New Jersey-Pennsylvania border to Manchester Center, Vermont. And the only thing really that uh, ran us off the trail, or probably more me than him, were the black flies in Vermont. And he said at the time, um, and some of you may know this, but kind of the the mantra is hike your own hike. And he said, I would rather you stop now having had a good time than stay out here and be miserable and never come back. But even when I left, you know, getting on the Greyhound bus, heading back to Mississippi, I just felt this sense of loss. And I couldn't explain it, didn't know what it was. And we weren't even necessarily with, you know, the pack because when we started, it was in May, early May. And we finished, I want to say May 1st to about June 10th. So we were above, you know, that year's group of through hikers so it wasn't even so much the community but it was now I can't really even explain it either um and certainly hikers that I interviewed tried to explain it but so I did that 99 stayed in Wyoming for a few years um decided to go back to school and go to grad school And it wasn't until 2005 when I was a grad student at Mississippi State, I decided to hike a little bit again on the AT that summer. And I did, you know, a couple of weeks here and there in between, but this was a chance I had, you know, to do a month again. And I thought, well, might as well interview people while I'm out there, um, get some, you know, get approval to do the research and just talk to people about why they're here. I know there's something special about this place. And the community. So I never knew that um, it would be the basis of my dissertation at the time. So when I went back again in 2007, I thought, well, I'm certainly going to interview, you know, more hikers. And the other reason, um, other than you know the the social practices and just the ability to come together and form groups, that made me want to study this group of people is when I looked at other research that had been conducted on long distance hikers or the hiking community on the AT, through hikers were taken out of the research for the analysis at the end. And I thought, here's a study, and these were quantitative studies, so surveys, people just crunching numbers. I thought, through hikers spend the most time on this trail, they have the most invested in it, you know, in terms of time, in terms of maybe being with the community, why take this group out if you're talking about place attachment, behavioral loyalty? And so that's, I really wanted to give a voice, now they would keep long distance hikers, so people who might hike up anywhere from two weeks to months at a time, um, they remained because the, think, section hikers, day hikers and weekend hikers made up the majority of visitors. So if they're going to say these patterns exist, we need the majority, not the two to three percent. I'm like, but they attach the most to the trail, so we have to give them a voice. So that's what uh, prompted me to do this uh, research. So at this point, do you all have any questions for me about any of that? Yes, and then we'll jump up. Not very many, at least, that I've talked to. Um, I know when I was doing my interviews, I met a couple out on their honeymoon, And somebody told them, well, maybe you should have hiked the trail together before (laughs) because you'll really get to know somebody very well. But they were hiking for their honeymoon. Um, My husband and I go out there when we go together. Um, Another couple that you'll read about or maybe hear about today, um, North Florida Swamp Donkey and Lady Mustard Seed, they were a married couple in their mid-20s who decided to hike. But we were really the exception. Big time rather than the rule. Um, there have been a few cases where, and there's, there are hikers in here, Montreal and Kutsa. She's from Israel. He's from Montreal. And they met on the trail. He was on a second through hike. She was starting her first. And they met somewhere in Pennsylvania, started hiking together, and they eventually, you know, they kept their relationship going, their friendship, and then they eventually got married. Um, so even that happens on the trail, but again, not... As often, but it and it maybe is because of where we are in our lives. The majority of people who, at least that again, that I have met on the trail or in their I'd say 18 to 23, 24, so they just finished high school or college, tend to be white, male. Um, I say middle class only in the sense of social classes present by its absence because you. And since you have to be able to afford the time off to go. And so that's why I say maybe middle class lifestyles. Or if they're not 18 to 24, it tends to be people, I'd say, around 50, give or take, or older. So people who have retired and now maybe have the time to do it. But even you don't have a whole lot of 30 or 40-something-year-olds out there hiking either. But I'm thinking they're in the middle of maybe careers and families, if that's the case. So... It tends to be later. And you had a question? Yeah. In your
2: first
1: 40 days, in, yeah. there was
2: something that stuck. I do something more specific. Was it wanting to be more? Did it want to see more? Did it want you to meet more people? Did it to experience it in your parents? Just what brought you
1: back again? again? I I would say it was just this sense of loss. Like I remember sitting on the, like I'd lost a friend, if that makes sense. Um so I don't know for me if it was the freedom. I'm, I'm thinking if I can find this quote. I just marked some things in case I could share from the book that, um, that Montreal actually said, um, you know, that it, it's hard to capture in terms of what people go through. But to me, he really um, puts it very nicely. If I could even... Because one of the things to me that was, like I said, important was place. Because, um, like, at least in sociology, we talk about how the self is formed in relation to other people. But we're also place-situated beings. Like, I feel like we form identities in relation to places that are important to us, not just people. And that's what, we we don't really talk about that in sociology. So, um, so this... Um, is what Montreal had to say. I think this is the quote I want to get to. Um, Yeah, like the guy Nimble Nimble Will Nomad who wrote 10 Million Steps, he's doing conferences and people ask him, why do you go back on the trail? And he said that's a question he cannot answer. You feel it, your body feels it, you just cannot say it in words. You ask a lot of two-timers why do they come back and they will say nature or this or that, but it's something else that a lot of times you cannot express this thing that you feel. And through that interview he continued to say, and a lot of times you may not even know it until two or three years later, that all of a sudden there's this aha moment. And so I don't know if that's it, but it, it feels like I mean that's a home away from home really, you know, j- just as part of growing up in Mississippi would be. Um had a question. Are there, what's the percentage of
3: through hikers? they did, successfully did a through hike the first time they tried, or they tried and they uh, had to stop at some point, but then come back to become a successful through
1: hike. Um, well, I could tell you, for those who start in Georgia, and most people do start in Georgia and hike north. Um, I know the Appalachian Trail Conservancy, after the movie came out, and you may have seen it or read the book, um, A Walk in the Woods, they're trying to encourage people to do alternate through hikes, because the tradition is to start south and hike north, Uh, but they're saying do flip-flops, start in Harper's Ferry, maybe hike south, then either go to Katahdin and then hike back to... Harpers Ferry, just to kind of minimize the impact a little bit. But for those who do start, and their intent is to do a through hike about one in four, accomplish their goal. And they've said, uh, and they're actually talking about doing permits, which they don't do right now on the Appalachian Trail. They do that on the Pacific Crest Trail. But but they're thinking about issuing out a certain number of permits a day um, just because of the impact. On the trail, um but I've heard even like five thousand start twenty five hundred might make it I can't remember if that's make it out of Georgia or make it to Damascus, and I've not hiked any in Georgia, <clears throat> but I have heard Georgia is very tough, and which is probably the reason a lot of people quit. I think Georgia's about seventy seven miles, but I have heard there are extreme ups and downs you don't have a lot of switchbacks. And that's what gets people. I mean, it's just pointless, up, down, up, down, without any break. A friend of mine told me he lost the majority of his weight in Georgia, starting off. (laughs) So I've heard Georgia's just rough. Um, But then, you know, so half of the people maybe make it to Damascus, and then a lot of your younger people might start dropping off after Damascus when the community gets smaller. Um, And as people have said it to me, the spring break party's over. And then it becomes work, and so a lot of younger people will drop off after Damascus, after the big Trail Days Festival. Um, And then a guy we talked to in Harper's Ferry that let us stay with him, Bonzo, he's through hiked, I think three times now. Um, He said a lot of people that make it that far, the riffraff's gone. He's like, you look like butt, you smell like butt, you're coming to my house, so... (laughs) Um, So he feels like people who make it that far are pretty serious, but even those who make it to Harper's Ferry, even probably only half of those make it in maybe because of injuries. Um, I did interview one guy who injured himself in Parisburg, and he said he sat in that hotel for two days trying to get better, just in tears that he was going to have to leave. But then uh, the year I interviewed him in 07, he started over again in Georgia. To continue on and I guess it was probably I want to say pencil I think it was New Jersey where I interviewed him so he was going on but I you know in the a through hike the Appalachian Trail Conservancy recognizes and it's on the honor system so it's self-reported that you finished it Um, but it can be somebody who hikes it continuously in the four to seven months or shorter um, as the case may be or if you do it over you know a period of Longer section hikes. As long as you get the the mileage in, then you would be considered a thru hiker.
2: Mhm. I mean, mm-hmm. how do you do that? If I sometimes I just go to Pennsylvania, I the chimney do and something down. I mean, is everything that sets foot on the trail have
1: to pay? I think they would only do it at the starting and ending points. And I think the most recent, probably a week and a half, two weeks ago, I saw in the news that it's at Katahdin where they're seriously talking about issuing the permits. So it seems like to me it would be for, certainly for people hiking south, but I don't know what that would mean for those who make it that far north or if you just said, hey, I'm going to hike this section, if you would have to do that too. So I guess they're still in the planning stages. I think after the movie um, Wild came out mm-hmm. and, you know, the book then – there was an increase, a huge increase of numbers hiking like the Pacific Crest Trail. They they had record numbers of people starting last year, but also quitting because it wasn't Hollywood like they thought. And but they ended up having two days where they issued permits that were their official starting days, just to deal with the numbers. So so I wonder. I just wanted to say, you know, I read Tom Horton's
2: book A lot of times there are streams or something, and there's a woods, and I always feel like the hikers are actually protecting because nobody's going to say, Oh, well, I'm going to develop this, you know, and it's going to cut the apple drawing wrong half. So, therefore, I, I mean, in, in a certain way, it's protective because here's this use that people put, and nobody's going to say, Hey, I want to make a parking garage right, right here.
1: We do this I thought. I did not know this until I started doing research, but I thought it was so cool to me that Benton Mackay, his vision of the AT, and I write about it a little bit in here, um, was really an instrument of social reform for the urban working class with encroaching capitalism, industrialism. It's like we need, again, not an alternative so much, but we need to make adjustments too. This lifestyle because it's coming. And so, really, the AT was for the urban working class. He envisioned a series <coughs> of community and farm camps that, and they were connected by shelters that dotted the length of the trail. And it was a place where the urban working class could go and still experience leisure, but while they were working. And so what be Maybe going out into the community? And- I think just along the trail and even like some of the shelters. Um, I guess you would have dotted lookouts for forest fires, but they would be able to work there. So he called it his, you know, Appalachian Trail project. Uh, but then he didn't have the backers or kind of your pragmatist or social reformers on his side and managers, recreation managers, parks, you know, service professionals, edu- educated professionals kind of took over the trail, and they had the backing and the support. So to me it's interesting that what he envisioned as, you know, an instrument of social reform for the urban working class became a way of escape for, you know, educated middle-class professionals to get away as opposed to combining the two. So I often wonder, would he be disappointed in what the trail is today? But if it was about recuperation, rejuvenation, then I don't think so. And then given what you just said about it's a way to keep this area protected, then I think he would be.
2: Mm-hmm. And taxes. His name's Freeman, that's his drumming, and he just hikes. and then in, in uh, Georgia in the winter he has some sort of a can with some sort of heater mm-hmm. and he has no place to live and for years. So I I mean, that's not just one person, I mean just from talking There are people that are kinda like they're not really homeless, they're just hiking. But they don't have.
1: There was a guy I interviewed um, named Slack, and he he was in this probably same situation. And he said he wasn't homeless; he was just houseless at the time that this was his home. And so he and he didn't have, you know, the the gear that other people had, which you don't have to have. I mean, you can like a hiker told me you can hike with anything from Walmart or Osprey or who. I mean, it just takes the motivation of putting one foot in the other. I mean, you can hike it with whatever. But um, but Slack, he was kind of bartering his way. So he made jewelry. It's kind of like, well, I can trade you this jewelry I just made if you can share some of your food. But that was his way of making it through. Mm-hmm. you talk about how you interview people? Were you actually on the trail? Yes. <clears throat> that was really important to me um, and probably because I had hiked on the trail before because um, I thought, in, you know, I could have easily sat at a road crossing anywhere and thought every 10th hiker that walks by, I'll see if they have a few minutes to spare. But oftentimes um, what I, People tell you in interviews is not maybe always what you see <laughs> too so it was good though for me to be able to not only hear what they had to say but see their interactions with other people and I think too probably that part of that feeling of loss is hiking really is an embodied experience your body feels every step you take so it's not just oh I had this experience I can go home and I have these memories but physically I think you feel that difference when you come home whether it's the amount of calories you consume in a day and then you can't do that when you get home um, and I've met hikers out there it's like this one guy had lost um I want to say he lost 50 pounds when he was hiking but when he went home he gained 70 back and I just joked with him I was like "I swear you're back out here huh you kept eating like you were and he goes actually yeah so so I mean so your body feels it so I think that was an important part Um, for me to have more than that just one interaction and asking those questions Um, so I would interview people it might be at shelters in the evenings at trail days was a good opportunity for me to interview a lot of people especially if I was hiking above the the crowd Um, that gave me um, I needed to be where the people were and then just um, observing them because another thing that surprised me was hikers say we're all equal prince and pauper are the same you know, the trail levels, everybody, trail names help provide that leveling of everyone. Um, you can create a new persona, be who you want to be. Nobody has to know, but the same cliques that are here in society show up out there. Um, it may just be, um, well, actually, I think I'll just, like I said, read from here as much as I can if I can find it. Kutza, um gives a really good description of the different types of hikers. I can find her. She's in Chapter 5. And I will say, not anyone that I asked to be interviewed declined. So I think everybody was happy to talk about and share their trail experiences, and interviews lasted anywhere. um, Shortest was probably 30 minutes to an hour and a half. So people were happy to, even when, and if you've hiked before, know people. It's like the miles really matter, especially if you're where you're doing twenty five, seven miles a day, which I would never do. (laughs) But, um, but even for those people, they would sit and talk to me for an hour. Um, so people were happy to. Let's see, like I said, she she puts this um, nicely. They did, and they gave me permission because um, part of we, you know, what we do with research is we protect our subjects. So I would have loved to have had a glossary of all forty-six hikers and where they were from, their job, age, but that would have given too much. But I did get permission to use their trail names because that's that's so much a part of the community. You know, you can't talk about hikers on the AT without bringing in trail names. Um, So Montreal, um, her husband said this, sometimes the way they act on the trail is the same way they would act in society. Drifter yesterday, I think he said at Partnership Shelter, it is funny because you have little cliques like gangs, and a lot of people think that because they are here, everything from the modern society is outside, which is not true. We have the same competition on the trail, the same social classes and type of people who look at each other a bit. You know, some people have less education. Kutsa says, I think it's just on a different scale instead of... We're lawyers. When we're here it's on a different either it's the clothes, the pace you're hiking, if you're with a cool group. If you're fast, you wanna keep up with the young fast group. If you're very slow or if you're over, if you're very slow or if you're overweight, maybe she won't make it. If you're slacking, if you're whatever. If you're not going straight and you're going to flip flop, that's a different kind. Purist blue blazers, yellow blazers, all that I think kind of puts it it's a different language, but it's the same exact judgment almost, I think. So to hear them say, oh, Prince of Pop are the same, everybody's equal, it's like, "Mm -hmm." (laughs) mm-hmm, because there's still those divisions. But I I will say this. um, I don't think there's a lot of, so I was going to say a lot of tension or, like, judgment or value judgments. I mean, you have your hiker hierarchy with through hikers at the top. And, again, this is just based on use patterns. Um, I'm not elevating through hikers. But you would have through hikers, section hikers, weekenders, and then day hikers. Just, again, no value judgment, just different approach to hiking. But then if you take your long-distance hikers, so your through hikers and your section hikers, they are further stratified as a group based on what she was saying if you're a purist. And so a purist would be somebody who thinks you have to hike past every single white blaze to say you've hiked the, the trail. So if you went a side trail or you yellow blazed and did a little bit on the road, you can you cannot say you're a thru hiker because you did not hike every part. And that's when the well hike your own hike. You've got to do it the way that's best for you. Um, a blue blazer would be somebody who again would hike maybe that side trail. So if there's an area that could be pretty steep maybe dangerous maybe you just don't like heights they might have a side trail so you can go around that part um a purist would say that's Mm-mm. and so this one hiker I interviewed said the minute she found out what a purist was she intentionally went back and did a blue blaze trail just so she would not be identified with that particular group <laughs> um so so that's where you do see maybe a little bit of judgment um there I'd never heard of a pink blazer before has anybody else heard that <laughs> term um i thought again coming from sociology i heard the term in 2005 that tv ted was pink blazing i thought okay so he'd been taking rides or looking to hitch rides from women so i thought that meant in terms of his masculinity he was cheating so as a way to demasculinize him they called him a pink blazer that's what i thought But the person meant, so 2007, somebody mentioned pink blazing again. I was like, what is that? And I was told that's guys who come out there to chase women. (laughs) Not the place I would expect that to happen, (laughs) that it would be like a club environment, you know, or something. But um, I did interview a lady. She was 63 at the time. Her trail name was Sweet Sixteen. Because she wanted it to symbolize youth and you know kind of the fountain of youth, and that's why she was going. She did say three young men had been following her um, because on the trail, if you're not familiar with this, they have um journals that they leave in shelters or whoever takes care of the shelters. So you can write in you know sweet sixteen in for the night and anything else you want to share. people will tell jokes and leave the punchline, you know two shelters down the way or talk conspiracy theories, just all sorts of stuff. But these three guys had been trying to catch her, and when they did, they are like, oh, you're sweet 16. (laughs) We'd been trying to catch you. So I guess it does happen, Um, but but that's kind of a new term. I've even heard more on websites and stuff or blogs that people write of green blazers, I guess people who are just smoking it up and getting high the whole way. (laughs) I didn't hear that term when I was interviewing people, but... Um, So just your variety of hikers, but I'm trying to think. Flip-floppers, like I mentioned. um, Slack packers, are y'all familiar with that term? That would be another one somebody might say, well, you didn't truly hike the trail if you didn't carry your whole weight of your pack the whole time. But a slack packer would be, um, so you have an opportunity to get a lot of miles in, and you might be staying at a hostel in town. And somebody says, well, you know, you can leave your bag here. We'll drop you off at the trail, take your... You know, day pack or a fanny pack, some food and water, and so you can get a lot of miles in without the weight of your pack. And then you just eventually end up back with that person, and then they'll take you up the trail that much, you know, further to get you back on. Um, but some people would not think you hiked it if you. <clears throat> some people would even say, I mean, if you even hitch a ride, that you shouldn't. You should walk every step your own way. But again, that's why I hike your own hike. Um, but a long way back to your question. I think that's why it was important for me to not only talk to them but also see and experience what they were going through. As a follow-up to that, Mm -hmm.
3: did you ask the same questions to everybody or did you start out with a certain set of questions and then kind of improvise depending on the person you're talking to? I mean, in the sense of research, I wonder how much sort of baseline, you know, through line kind
1: of questions Mm -hmm. um, well, with the with the semi-structured, you know, interview, so I did have a set of probably, you know, 10 or so questions that I would ask about what's your inter- interaction like with other hikers? Do they add to the hiking experience? Um, tell me about your trail name. How did you get it? What does it say about you? Is it a name you gave yourself? Um, so I would ask questions like that. But then if they brought up topics, like I, I did not know to ask about uh, re-entry um, because when I'm interviewing people they're still in the process of their hike so even those who call themselves through hikers unless they were a repeat through hiker I don't know if they finished or not I think it would be fun to go and look at the trail names of those years but um but when people brought up just this depression when they go home just that sense of loss again after a long hike and And they don't even have to hike the whole thing to feel that. And I mean, I didn't feel a sense of depression, but some people do go into a deep depression. They may change their jobs. Just life is not how they experience it anymore. So when hikers would bring that up, I absolutely could ask follow-up questions. And that would be the next place I think I would want to take some of this research is find people who have hiked and finished and to see how they're adjusting um, to life afterwards. Yes, ma'am. Um, like even, so I'll say when my husband and I hike, I mean, first time he went, he was complaining and hurting and I thought, you make me forget why I even like coming out here. So I will say women can be less nurturing and emotional (laughs) on the trail, but, um, so you have plenty of time because you hike at different paces. So I think when you want that alone time, you easily have it. Um, but then many hikers tell me they like that during the day to have that time to think. Um, and just sort through them through some things, maybe the reasons that brought them out there. But with the shelters, our camping at night, water sources, they are those social centers. So, so you're you st- you're still not alone. Um, so you, but you can choose if that's too much for you. Then you can camp in other places. Uh, but a lot of people will be drawn to the shelters for that little bit of interaction, um, which can also be provided for. I will say by Trail Angels. So people who show up to give trail magic to hikers and maybe their former hikers who know what somebody's wanting at this particular place. Um, So they'll set up and, I mean, it can be elaborate spreads of food. People have hauled kegs, bottles of Southern Comfort whiskey, stuff to make quesadillas. I mean, all sorts of stuff, I mean, that you could imagine. But um, So even trail angels can provide that interaction. But I think... Little traditions like the half-gallon challenge. Are y'all familiar with that? Um, If you make it to Pine Grove Furnace State Park, that's the official halfway point. Um, Psychological halfway point is Harper's Ferry. People feel like they've made it halfway, but it's actually in Pennsylvania. And at the Pine Grove Furnace store, you can purchase a half-gallon of ice cream, and you just eat it as fast as you can. (laughs) We didn't do that because we did not feel like we had the appetite. And the guy we stayed with in Harper's Ferry told us if we did that, um, just be sure we had a whole lot of toilet paper <laughs> afterwards. We're like, think we'll just split a pint, but we were there while people did it, you know. And so I think those opportunities, these little traditions or rituals give people an opportunity to, to come together too. Which I did not find to be the case on the Pacific Crest Trail. That's why I feel like still this, this sense of community is special on the AT because you don't have social centers out there. You really are kind of by yourself. Um, I, I have a question. then here. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, you go ahead and then we'll. Oh, I think mm-hmm. um,
3: I've heard too of before where some people what they'll basically do is they'll mail food stuff. At oh yes. Mm-hmm. And then just pick it up like post offices are nearby or that kind of stuff. So. I didn't know if you heard any of that or if people
1: were stressed do that or, you know, stuff do want. Yeah, people do it both ways. Um, here on the East Coast, you're really close enough to get off the trail into a town to resupply. Um, we always shoot for a five- to seven-day uh, food supply. We always carry an extra day because you never know weather and stuff like that. But um, And we, we try to find places that are a mile or less off the trail, but also that would have a place for laundry or... Um, maybe a, like a hostel where we can stay if we needed time in town. Uh, but certainly you could hitch rides further, 10 miles into a town if that's what you need. Um, I w- maybe it's half and half. I, I wouldn't know what percentage because it's not necessary. But some people want to go ahead and plan their whole hike all the way through so they will send those mail drops. Um, did you have a question? Yeah,
3: I was wondering, you were talking about the shelters of the board sources. Mm-hmm. They sometimes get overwhelmed
1: The shelters? Oh, absolutely. Um, And then, too, you may have groups, because even when I've hiked, we try to be a little bit ahead just for that reason. Uh, We like shelters when it's raining, so you can get in and out pretty quick. But even, like, you might have a Boy Scout troop out there, so even if it's not other hikers, it's still close enough, you know, to, to the population that other people uh, might come out, even shelters that are close to a road, like maybe a mile or two in it's not unusual to have you know locals maybe come out there. Um, the ones that are close to road crossings tend to be the ones that are not as in not in the best shape, might have mice or. I don't want to say rats. Hopefully, nothing <laughs> that big. Though somewhere in uh, Virginia, we we could hear them running up and down, <laughs> right by our sleeping bags. So then, then you might want to stay out of a, a shelter in <laughs> that case. But they can get overwhelmed, and most of them are set up to only sleep six to eight people, and it's first come first serve. Though I will say, with the exception of the Smokies, um, people go out there because they don't want to be regulated. They want freedom. Do what I want to do. Don't tell me I'm not punching a time clock. But in the Smokies, um, you have to make reservations. So there is a permit that you do through there. And section hikers, day hikers, well, section hikers and weekend hikers are the ones who get preference. So a through hiker, if they show up, they don't make reservations. So they can't really set up their tent or set up in the shelter until the shelter gets full. So they feel like they're too regulated through their given their reasons for wanting to be out there. Maybe they're having this wonderful mountaintop or spiritual experience somewhere. They want to stay longer, but you have to be where you said you were gonna be. So they felt very regulated. Um I'm trying to think of a specific example. Um so let's say the Shelter's not full, but it's still not too late yet, so there may still be some section hikers coming through. So the thru-hiker can't set up anywhere until it's full. So let's say finally about 10 o'clock, they figure these people aren't coming, so I'm just going to set up in the shelter. If they show up, that person's got to pack their stuff up, get out and set up a tent. Or say they set up a tent because they're like, I'm done, I'm tired, I've hiked 20-something miles today, I just want to eat and go to bed. Um... If the shelter doesn't fill up and ridge runners come through, then they have to pack up their stuff and get in the shelter. So that—that's the part. if any hikers begrudge any part, it seemed to be the the regulation through the Smokies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> basically, the section hikers
2: they hike, or they reserve to the stay in the shelter. Mm-hmm. Through hiker, basically, maybe all the spots are reserved so the through hiker doesn't really know. Exactly.
1: Can't. And that's the frustrating part. So they have the ridge runners that come through checking, and we'll tell them, get out. Why do the ridge runners, if they're also having a tenant, why do they force them then? I know. That, that's their park policy. I, it makes... Bureaucracy. Yeah. <laughs> and that's that. That that's why I think it's frustrating. It's like, we came out here to get away from all that, and here we're being... Regulated. Mm -hmm. I think yes.
3: Are there any consistent um, places where the two authors say, "Oh, this this was the most beautiful. This was the nicest spot." Or sections where they would say, "Oh, this is the worst
1: Hmm.
3: spot on the trail."
1: In general, I think some of the worst is just when you're on a ridge for so long and in a green tunnel where you've climbed and then you've gone for so many days where there are no views. I think can't, people can get kind of down. Um, hikers, Some hikers have told me they get the West Virginia blues. And when I interviewed somebody, because that was something that came up in an interview that I didn't specifically ask about, and he said, well, I've never heard of that, but now that you've mentioned it, I hope I don't <laughs> get it. But up to Damascus, you've hiked about a little over 500 miles, once you're in Virginia, you're in Virginia alone for about 540 miles. So here you you feel like you're making progress, you're clicking off states, then you're there. Some Virginia blues could get to some people, though there are some of the prettiest places in Virginia, like McAfee Knob, the, the picture that's on, um, if you saw the, A Walk in the Woods, that overhang, I mean, that's in southern Virginia. Um, so that certainly is one people talk about. Uh, Grayson Highland State Park is also in Virginia. Have you been there? Yeah. Yeah. There are feral ponies out there, and they will come up to you, and the rock outcroppings up there are really cool. Um, Some people have likened it to the, like, boulder fields in Montana. I mean, that is just a really pretty area, and that's the section I actually take my students on. If I do a summer class, we go to Grayson Highlands so they can see the ponies see that area and then we hike south into Damascus for trail days so they can be with the hikers there. but um, but that is a place that people talk constantly about. Um, certainly Maine. I mean I've heard for the again, those I interviewed mostly were in the progress of hiking and unless they were a repeat hiker hadn't quite been there yet. Um, but just talk about that being some of the the scariest. Parts um, going through like that 100-mile wilderness area in Maine toward the end, um, and some of the different climbs or through the rock crevices might be difficult. Um, Blood Mountain, I've heard, um, in Georgia is awful, and the people dread Blood Mountain coming up because of the climb, and I don't know if it's true, but I have heard that Blood Mountain is no longer in the guidebooks because people dreaded it so much. They just didn't want you to know that's what was coming up next. (laughs) So they kind of removed that marking. Um, Oh, and in terms of other places where there can be some tension, um, Irwin, Tennessee was an area that I guess some of the land maybe, you know, the trail in some cases can go close to people's homes or through their backyards almost. And so... In Irwin, Tennessee, if anybody had a bad experience with locals, it tended to be there. I mean, little kids on the school bus were yelling at some hikers in 2005, hiker trash, get a job. Um, So there's just some tension between the locals and the hikers because they don't understand their reasons for a hike, and they might, hikers perceive that they are viewed as you're lazy, you don't want to work, you don't have a job, here you are on a permanent vacation, I'm out, you know, I'm here working my tail off. You're out there having fun. So there can be resentment. And back in the 80s, I heard tales of fish hooks being hung at eye level, again, around this area in Tennessee. Um, again, because they were trying to keep hikers away. I mean, I have never, ever since I've been out there, seen or experienced anything like that. Um, but that was one story. Oh, and that a water source was contaminated um, because they did not want hikers around. On the flip side of that, though, I would say Southern hospitality. Um, you seem to have a whole lot of trail magic provided to you in the South, but I think it's probably because you have a ton of people who start in the South. People are aware of the trail, and as they head north, the community gets smaller. People drop off. Maybe people aren't as aware. At the same time, it also could be that some are, a lot of the trail angels are, are view themselves as missionaries, are there part of, denom- you know, religious denominations, church groups, RAs, GAs, who might be leaving stuff out? So maybe that, too, is why, though, that trail magic is more often given in the South, um, if it's a way of proselytizing, I suppose. <laughs> so, so, but again, I've, I've never heard of cases like that, of trail devils, are people trying to sabotage the trail experience, Um. My experience has been nothing but positive. Um, the trail restores your faith in the goodness of people. I mean, you are trusting complete strangers. You don't know anybody's name, real name, unless maybe you get to know them longer. You mentioned mail drops. Uh, one guy I interviewed said he had been hiking with this guy for three months and didn't know his name, Maybe he knew him by his trail name. And then when they get to the post office for him to pick up his mail drop, they ask for his ID. <laughs> he hands it over, and he, his buddy looked at him and said, Dude, your name's Tom? It's like for three months you just did not know and it didn't matter. So it's like you totally trust people. I mean, you just you hope for a ride, you you take it. You you never second guess it. Here I would second guess any time. You know, somebody offered you a ride even when you're not looking, but the only place I would say to be careful would be road crossings or um, you know, when you're in town, but on the trail itself. People say, would you carry a gun? I wouldn't. I don't know why anybody would. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, every ounce matters. You start shaving it off. I mean, the first time I went, my friend was like, let me see what you've got. It's like, why do you have that? Why do you have that snake bite kit? Well, I don't know. (laughs) Pennsylvania has snakes. (laughs) So I've heard, and that's where we're going. It's like, Throw it away or mail it home. You're, and if that were to happen, chances are somebody's going to come along or you're close enough to be able to get where you need to go. Um, so we even, like, break our toothbrushes, anything we can do to shave off ounces. Um, I have There are women out there who might shave their heads because they're not going to want to wash. You can't wash your hair every day, and that just becomes a nuisance, but they won't shave their legs because they're not going to carry a razor around. But then you have others who will kind of keep those um, comforts, I guess, and maybe do that.
3: Can, can I, to you, Ellen, I share one more thing? Sometimes with the scouts, what they even do is they do a skit where you have two of the guys. You have one guy camping as light as possible. We can just thinking about that. The, the mm-hmm. drug off toothbrush is one of the things yeah. that some of the long distance, once you know, ones who do longer distance hiking, will do. And the other one has all the other kind of stuff dragging along you could never carry uh-huh. it and all like that, just to show how visually, and, and the boys really get it, too. That's the
1: coolest thing. They see uh-huh. the you know. And I think a lot of times it's your section hikers who probably do carry more than what they need, or at least that's what the through hikers have told me, that they learn how to really shave off the weight and what they don't need. Um but yeah every ounce matters I th- one time I heard a rule of thumb is your pack should be about a third of your body weight but then some are telling me no their pack's 10-15 pounds tops but then it depends on how many days of food you're carrying and stuff like that too yeah this is going back a while, you were talking about
2: people who've been on the trail a while and then they're very sad mm-hmm. um, I think there's something about the wood mm-hmm. um, even if I'm in the wood's going out but I think <coughs>
1: Um, it seems like, I mean, Drifter is one person I interviewed in particular who kept coming back. And even if people can't do another through hike, they still go back. Either it's to give trail magic to other people, but it's still a way to stay connected in some way. Or maybe it's the section hikes or a 500 mile piece that they want to do again. But it just seems like they, I mean, I would say more people than not that I interviewed had been back for some reason because there's just something about it. And that's why I wonder, when you have these other trails, anywhere else you could go, you keep coming back to this one. And um, I won't take the time to find it, but like Res Dog, for example, he uh, fought in Vietnam. It was a war he opposed. And he he was out there uh, for a second through hike when I interviewed him if not a through hike, another big section. And he said it was in Virginia walking by the Audie Murphy Memorial, most decorated, or veteran. Um, a plane crashed around that area, so they have a monument that they've erected. And he said it wasn't till he walked by that, because he was trying to, I think his dad had just died. He was trying to just resolve the feelings he had for being in a war he strongly opposed. And he said, when I walked by that, I realized he and I are brothers. And whatever it was about being out there in the woods, he said, I finally came to terms with what I'd been through that day. But, and he was one, even in our conversations, he wasn't so much talking about, I guess, spirituality, but he's like, out here, this is my cathedral. So it was like this um, kind of just restorative kind of experience for him. And it seems like I find that for so many people, um it's that it really is like a religious pilgrimage, right? You have that conversion, that renaming that you go through. you're totally split from the society you know, then you have these new relationships, they end as quickly as they start, but then um you can meet somebody who you didn't know, but you find out you shared that you have a trail experience together, and it's like you knew that person forever It just has that weird. Connection for people, but I think it's because they know what other people have been through, and I think too, some people probably go back searching for what they found the first time, and that they may not always find that either um so it seems like it's something that just happens naturally, but I do think people absolutely go back time and time again, if not as a hiker, as a trail angel or something. Well, it's the kind of people already <coughs>
2: really good. Mm-hmm. I
1: mean, it would be different if you went to a dive bar. You might have meet some other kinds of people, who would be the kind of people that end up on a mountain top. Right. So, <laughs> you know. Well, and even, you know, we talked about the diff- the divisions or classes of hikers, <clears throat> if you will. Um, a couple of hikers said, I think you have either your, your chest thumpers or your dreamers. <laughs> And she even said, and I think to an extent all of us are dreamers in some way or we wouldn't be out here. But you have the people who want to hike it, do it as fast as they can. I think um, they dream her fiancé said, you know, just to get the plaque and hang it up next to their deer head. But of course, to his fiance sunshine, she said, but if that's what they're grooving on, then that's their thing, you know, that's their dream, that's their goal, but I would say it does seem to be like you have those two calibers, those who are out there for the competition, either against themselves, perhaps with other hikers, and those might tend to be more your purist versus those who, it's like, oh, it's a waterfall, I'm just going to stay here you know, for a, a few days, yeah. Other Questions?
3: <clears throat> Are there times and places where you can where there's warmer lightning risk?
1: Oh, right off the place that comes to mind to me would be the White Mountains in New Hampshire. <laughs> have you hiked that area at all or yeah. familiar with it? Yeah. Um
3: have got stuck on, on the, uh um above treeline mm-hmm. and now where we the ridge. Not but very intense, strong, Well, that's the spot is walk in the woods where uh, Bill Bryson chose to discuss hypothermia.
1: Okay, <laughs> <laughs> so, so definitely well. there, and you know, and th- that was a place. Um, Before moving to West Virginia, we went to hike a little bit and finished Vermont, and we had hiked, I want to say, to Hanover, and we were getting ready, you know, soon to approach the whites, and we looked at the weather about a week, a week and a half ahead, and it looked like it was going to be thunderstorms, and we thought, it's just not the time to be out here. Um, So we ended up getting off the trail because we knew we were about to get in that, and that could be pretty dicey, and the weather can change so fast up there, even temperature-wise. Um, probably another area for lightning might be some of the balds, like in North Carolina where you wouldn't have really any tree cover either. Um, but I do know that area. <laughs> it's pretty rough. I have one thing about that. I think okay. it was about the shattered air, but it was about
2: these people that exercised some pretty poor judgment and basically they knew that lightning and thunder was coming and they chose to rely and then they kind of um, went in this little cave. And basically, if it's raining really hard, the last thing you want to do is lie in the middle of meadow and get soaked. But that's actually the better. Mm-hmm. To do. The only reason you should ever go in a cave is if the ground is dirt and you're not touching any rock in there. Because it basically said the lightning, if it hits the inside, it kind of swirls around. Conducts
3: it. And Mm-hmm. And anyway, at the end of
2: that book, there's all these rules that you should safety rules. They're about ten or them. That might be a good book
3: to like look at this rules. Mm-hmm. I think it was shattered air. It's an account of these people on Camp I want to say shattered air because from memory. Um,
1: but it's definitely an account of some people who Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's actually a place where
2: lightning is very dangerous. Anyway.
3: Have any of the folks that you, you interviewed uh, read the book or gotten back in touch with you? Or still recognize themselves in the book or have you been in touch with them? Or?
1: Um one, two four. So far, Res Dog, who I've mentioned, Um, of course, and these, I just let them know that it was coming. And a couple of them did say, I wondered, (laughs) because we're talking, what, 10 years ago, you know, since the first interviews, they're like, I wondered whatever came of that. Um, So they absolutely have. I've not heard back from them yet. um, So I'm anxious to follow up with them now that it's been out, but uh, but for I did email everybody, and everybody pretty much wanted me to have their contact information, their email, some way to let them know what happened, um, and not many of them are still um, reliable email addresses now. Um, I mean, so I don't know how many people use Hotmail anymore, but I'm just thinking some, you know, I, I, do y'all use Hotmail still? I was, uh, so some, I mean, they just weren't even there. Maybe if it was their school address, and then they graduated and moved on and then got a new one. But um, but definitely, and one person I see often at Trail Days, um, Heartfire, and she's in here a lot. Um, she started her own line of gear called Light Heart Gear. Do you know? Okay. How? And she lives in North Carolina now because she was in Texas when I interviewed her. Um, she was living there, or at least that's where she said she was originally from, so yeah, Judy, yep, yep, (laughs) so that's, I guess that's, I mean, to me, a good example of this trail community, you know, it's like, in my first year, um, and when I go back and look at my journals, in 2005, when I was first interviewing people, it's like I was so jealous, like seeing everybody interact at trail days. I mean, people come back, it's like a class reunion. They have their banners of the year they hike, and I mean, it's just huge. And it's like, there's just something special here, and I'm, you know, not part of this yet, and I'd only just was getting started. But the longer I hiked, and then you get to know people, you're just completely part of the community. Um, has anybody been to trail days before? You have probably that is the quote unquote quote friendliest town on the A T as they tout themselves as being that way in Damascus. Um, I would say probably you have a ton. It's a starts on Thursdays, and they have two different areas. They have. Um, like in the town of Damascus around the square is where all the gear people set up. So Light Heart Gear now sets up there. That's when I run into Heartfire. Um, but you have all these booths down there. But it's also people selling arts and crafts and that sort of thing too. Um, there's, in Damascus, there is... A Methodist church that runs a hostel called The Place that's got probably eight, enough for eight, maybe ten people to sleep in bunks and rooms spread out. So that's a good place for showers when you first come into town. And if you want to stay in town, you can pitch your tent all around that particular area, or you can go to Tent City, which is an oddity in and of itself. <laughs> so it was my mission to stay at Tent City's. Um, the next year I went because I'd stayed at the hostel before, It's just interesting, and this is where I stay when I take students because they love it up here too, but they have a big baseball field, and this is about a mile, I'm going to say north of town, but it's where the baseball fields are, and so there are tents all over that area, but then in the woods, in the outskirts of the baseball fields, there are all these little... um, cities that pop up so like groups that come year after year after year so you have riffraff is a common one um you know you're at riffraff's little city uh when you see the skull and crossbones or the jolly roger flag and you have to yell riffraff you know to be able to go up <laughs> into their place um then you have like butthole is another one um pound town is another one and they were known a couple years ago for playing um Oh, beer pong and poker they had some tables set up out there so that that is just an interesting place because there are all these different personalities um riffraff has a mayor who will greet you and he was in a um overcoat and tie and a little hat and so these are people who have hiked before as well who come back year after year and set up out there and they usually start maybe even setting up a week before trail day so that's kind of they have drum circles up there all night long. Um, so again, people will make their way back and forth. But during trail days, they have, um, I would say, some workshops probably, like the Nimble Will Nomad, I think, has been before and given talks about some of the different hikes he's been on. So you have that. You have, um, like I said, the hiker parade, which I wanna say is on the Saturday of trail days. So people get together, they make banners, they hike through, and then the current years through hikers are at the end. Uh, But they have, you know, the Miss Whatever County. So, I mean, it's your kind of traditional small town parade, but then the big part is with the hikers. And used to what they would do um, is have a water balloon fight. And actually, that starts this book, so I can read you the description of what that um, looked like to probably give you a better sense. But here's, I mean, there's some pictures in the book, so that's the big water fight going through Main Street in Damascus in a hiker trash uh, year of class of 2001, you know, coming back together, going through. um, But Lady Mustard Seed talked to me a lot about this. Um, On a cloudy day in the middle of May in downtown Damascus, Virginia, the atmosphere was ripe for battle. The lightning and thunder had passed. Just a few raindrops remained softly falling on us and them. It was us against them, always us against them. "'Men and women, young and old, lined the sidewalks surrounding Main Street, winding all through downtown, around the corner, and over the bridge and beyond. "'They were armed. We were armed. It was time. They knew it, and we knew it. "'In the beginning, it seemed almost peaceful. Some of the local citizens of Damascus appeared on their porches as we, a mighty mob of hikers, made our way down Main Street. "'It wasn't long before the first shot was fired. A water balloon. Then came the full-on attack.' Water balloons, water guns, super soakers, and even the occasional water hose. It was total chaos. Hikers left the parade temporarily and playfully fought with locals in their yards, all the while pelting and being pelted with weapons filled with water. Lady Mustard Seed, a 26-year-old hiker from Florida, described this event as, quote, a retreat to childhood and the rowdiest thing she had ever experienced in her life up to this point. Children were screaming as they aimed water guns and sailed water balloons toward the mob of hikers. La- laughter filled the air. So that might give you a sense of (laughs) the parade, but um, probably for the last two or three years, the the town is discouraging water balloons. So you can still have the water guns, but they've kind of discouraged people from doing that. And when I was there, um, I mean, this was unfortunate. It was probably, I guess, a couple years ago. um, And we did not hike in the parade that year. There were only a couple of students with me. They're like, no, we'd just rather watch it and be on the sidelines and take pictures. I don't know what happened, but somebody was in a vehicle, hit the back, you know, of the, the group of hikers, and I think one person was injured, but they took people to the baseball field and had, you know, helicopters come in to, um take people out, so that that was kind of scary, so we even wondered if they were even going to allow the parade anymore, which they still do. Um but, yeah, I mean, so, and I think, I don't think it was that. first they thought it might be somebody who was just anti-hiker like we talked about before, but they found that that was not the case, that it was, I think, somebody maybe who was diabetic and their blood sugar got off. And so they, it, instead of braking, they accelerated. But you did see, again, that community of hikers come together and pretty much lifted the car up. Um, I mean it wasn't on somebody but it was over her but they I mean rallied together to do what they needed to do um in addition to the the hiker parade uh, which they still do like i said we thought they might cancel that um, they have a hiker talent show which is hilarious so if you have a talent <laughs> or you want to well you don't even necessarily have to have I say a good talent in the sense of trained, you know, singing or music. <laughs> um, you could just about get up there and do anything. But so you have some crazy acts with um, all sorts of stuff. You know, people cross dressing and singing, or wearing—I don't remember what the guy did, but he had on a diaper. Um And he sang some song <laughs> again i can't remember what about it. I think it had to do with maybe hygiene and pooping in the woods or something, but you get all sorts of stuff, so the hiker talent show is very entertaining, but then you do have some legitimate you know talent in terms of you know the performance and what people do um but that's always a good time um but then they have all these people set up, so they have music at night downtown they have um Any number of gear suppliers, I would say in that town of about 18, 814 people, there's about 10,000 people the weekend of trail days. And they have, for hikers that come in, uh, you will have maybe a medical area. So if you have blisters, you want to check your body fat, weigh yourself. If you have anything that needs to be patched up, you have people there who will provide that service free. You have people, um, and I say people, the group that does that, they are from a church that come every year, so that's their mission. Um, Up at Tent City, when we got there, um, people said, do you have any gear or clothing that you need repaired? There were some people sewing over here that would fix anything that you needed repaired. Um, There was a church group. They were a church group. There was another church group there that had mobile showers, and they did our laundry for us. Like, what? Are you kidding? They're like, no, just write your name, your trail name on your bag, come back in about three hours, and we'll have your laundry done. Do you want a shower? Like, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, so trail, trail days is fun. But, and a lot of people will hike back or hitchhike back. If they start early and are ahead of the pack, then they'll still come back for trail days because they just don't want to miss it or after they finish, come back year after year. That's definitely a crazy time. That's why I say maybe the spring break party's over after that point, and then it becomes work. Any other questions?
2: I guess it was the 75th oh, anniversary of Appalachian mhm. and they had a lot of programs <laughs> like They had about a 20-minute video that showed making the Appalachian Channel beginning. It was all in black and white. The and women wore these long black skirts. Mm-hmm. And, um, the trail was measured. There was this little thing with a wheel, and you could roll it along, and it would measure distance. Well, they'd be in the middle of the woods with all these trees everywhere, and they would take what like almost baling twine and wrap around a tree, and then stretch it, and then wrap, and that was like here's the trail. And then hmm. they called them loppers, you know, kind of, you know, and they just showed them kind of bushwhack. And apparently the reason they made this video was um, to make sure that the Georgia Trail Club and the Maine Trail Club knew the correct way to make the trail. Oh, goodness. So this was supposed to be instructional, <laughs> so that they could do it right. But um, apparently they kind of started making the trail and it was supposed to be. Um, but they hmm. all, and there was some thru-hikers that gave like lectures and stuff like that. And it was really cool. I don't know if you know of any other programs like that there
1: there's sort of seminars and different things? Um, ALDA, each year they have their annual gathering, um, the Appalachian Long Distance Hikers Association and there's an ALDA East and an ALDA West, and I'd probably say ALDA West though is more PCT people, but, um, but they have their annual gathering every year in September or October, and I went this year for the first time and they absolutely do Probably more workshops, more sessions like that, even how to hike, more advice giving if you're planning on doing the PCT or the CDT or you want a triple crown or what are the similarities and differences, the El Camino um, Trail, I believe, that's in Spain. Um, So you have people who definitely give those types of talks, Um, how to pack light um, at their meeting. And this year, um, actually, it's probably... Closer, definitely closer to y'all than it is us. Um, I think it was going to be a 15-hour drive if we were to go this year, but it's somewhere on the East Coast this year. So if you and to think the following spring, you'd go to the same kind oh, of Oh, hmm Absolutely. Um, because somebody asked me if this was a how-to book. No, I mean, to me, this is about the hiking community, subculture that develops there, behaviors, practices, why they do what they do, how everything kind of fits together, um, which to me is different than other books because you have a lot of memoirs written on the AT, but it's usually people, this is what I hiked, this is what I learned, this was my experience, this is theirs, and that whole community that kind of develops among hikers as they hike these 2,000 miles. Um, But yeah, that would definitely be a place um, to start for sure. Association, um, ALDA, yeah. A-L-D-H-A, absolutely, yeah, yeah, you'll find it easy, and they have, a, if you're on Facebook, they have a Facebook page, and that's another, if you are on Facebook at least, um, there's Appalachian Trails, Appalachian Trials, um, I think there are two Appalachian Trail, ALDA's on there, um, so people are giving advice all the time, mm-hmm. and and I see some disagreements and on there sometimes too which I'm thinking this but I, this community usually doesn't seem to be that way but some people just think they know better in their ways the the right way but uh, but a lot of advice if you want to ask for it for sure um and they just had
2: you know kind of like you know it's better Mm-hmm. And so they hired this guy to play the douchey guy that was doing anything wrong. And he's like, this Is this a good place to put a fire? And like in the middle of the trail, and, like, oh, no, no, no. and he's like throwing plastic on the fire. So they just had some of it was pretty strict, it's mm-hmm. how you would minimize your impact on the environment and also be courteous, like not making a lot of noise. And right. Mm-hmm. but they were showing it that when you went into the
1: ATC and the Appalachian Trail mm-hmm. were kind of broadcasting it. Okay. Yeah, I did notice just the 100-mile section we did in Oregon last summer, there is more trash from what I've seen. Uh people seem to care more about leave no trace out there. At the same time, there's way fewer people, you know, who are attempting that hike out there um but you definitely do see that difference. I wonder if that's why they're trying to push and promote the leave no trace principles more with the number of people who keep wanting to hike.
0: We've been having a really great conversation for this past hour, but I do want to give you a chance to rest a little bit and give people a chance to get the book. (laughs) So maybe we can shift the conversation to signing and getting the book. And thank you all very much for coming tonight. I'm glad we were able to
1: talk about this. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thank you all.